What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Healthspin Academy. I'm your host, Craig Shearhart, and joining me today is my special guest, Dr. Dan Carlin, who is an expert in mental health, uh, cognitive issues, and treatment with psychedelics. He started his academic career with a Bachelor of uh, in Neuroscience with uh, Neuroscience and Behavior from Columbia University, went on to complete a Master's in Medical Informatics and Cognitive Science and Medicine, and then completed his medical degree from University of Colorado. He's currently an Associate Professor in Psychiatry at Tufts University and the Chief Medical Officer at MindMed. He's the author of 43 scientific articles, commentaries, patents, and chapters in psychiatry and substance user disorders. And he's an expert in the use and development of psychiatric drugs in the digital medicine devices. So today's mostly about uh, the use of psychedelics and in, in improving cognitive function and helping people resolve mental health issues. Dr. Colin, thanks so much for being here, man. Yeah, it's a total pleasure. It's really nice to meet you. And I'm excited to see where we can go with this conversation. Likewise. So let's get into it. Uh, I want to kick this off with how you first got interested in, in cognition, mental health originally. I find the brain fascinating. It's just like it's a bit of an overload, but how did that come, come to your life originally? Yeah, I, I've been interested in this for so long that I don't remember a time when I was. <laughs> really? This is in as much as, as anyone could claim that they have something like a calling. I mean, it, it didn't happen like that. It just happened right. that I, I knew this was what I cared about. I mean, some of huh. it's my family. My, my dad's a neuroscientist. Okay, cool. Um, and, and I grew up in that environment. Kind of always knew that I wasn't going to be a, a wet bench science type person. That that didn't appeal Fair so enough. much. But um, really, I always, I always think I wanted to be a doctor. I don't really remember a time when I didn't. And I, I very quickly... Uh, narrowed in on psychiatry and and then addictions and, and clinical informatics is my other my other specialty because there's this neat convergence between all of these different uh, these different things and they offer a bunch of opportunities to try to progress yeah. the field as a whole. Absolutely, um, very cool. And then I guess specifically to psychedelics, this is kind of like blown up. I guess maybe the tipping point was Michael Pollan's book. I think that came out and kind of the masses got a hold of this info. Then there's been the the documentary on, on Netflix now, so uh, it's it's blown up. How did your first interest in that, or what kind of piqued the interest for you in, in psychedelics, and what what this potential might be for some of your clients or patients? I was doing things that were psychiatric and drug development related. I built treatment environments. Mm-hmm. I worked at Pfizer as a, as a psychiatric drug developer, and then right. a digital medicine advisor, mm-hmm. and and was aware of this undercurrent of, of swelling interest and, and seeming progression in a field that had, had been difficult to progress for a long time. Right. But I, I read my, Mike's book, just like a lot of other people, they do yeah. as psychiatrists, but, but I, I wasn't really tuned into just how far the psychedelic world had progressed mm-hmm. and became incredibly interested in the potential for, for these drugs, but, mm-hmm. you know, partly because there's so much evidence that they've worked in the past and, and right. They were put away for so long, yeah, uh, and and partly just because I I see the potential in the, the sort of way that these drugs affect people acutely. And look, we mm-hmm. don't know. It, it, you know, it'd be great if the acute effects, the psychedelic experience, was the mechanism of healing. We we don't know that to be true. Right. There are people who postulate it is. There are people who postulate it isn't. My huh. my guess is it's probably more complicated. It's probably both can be true, and it depends right. on the person and the disease and yeah. their background and so many layers and all sorts yeah. of stuff. Yeah. But but I, you know my my training in psychiatry wasn't just drugs, right? We tend to mm. think of psychiatrists as the person who writes writes a prescription and the, yeah. the psychotherapist is someone else. And that's right. not the way it has to be, and it's not mm-hmm. the way it's always been. And so, I, right. my, my training in psychiatry, like a lot of ours, had a had a great deal of, uh, of psychological thinking of 
of depth psychology thinking, of thinking about not just the person as a collection of behaviors, but people as being complex, uh, you know, complex beings with rich internal lives. And I think part of the excitement around psychedelics and part of my excitement for sure is the idea that it seems to be almost forcing a re-acknowledgement of the, of the richness of the internal part of a person, right? Uh, even as, you know, psychiatry over the last several dozen years has sort of drifted toward this like behavioral science, mm-hmm. which it, it's just not right. Yeah. What we're really concerned with is, is human well-being, And that, sure. that is the rich internal bits of the, of the person. So right. there, there's this, I think part of the excitement is people want a psychiatry that acknowledges them in that way again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so t- like going through the documentary, I don't know how much of that is like, like blown up and kind of like uh, by the directors and kind of blown the, the results out of proportion or, or what have you. But so I, I want to get a picture of what your sort of top success stories have been with that style of treatment. Um, like best case scenario from point A to point B, what, what are the, some of the stories that stick out to you type of trans- transformations that people have seen? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I have to talk about other people's work in order to talk about mm-hmm. the best case scenarios because sure. at MindMed, we, we are in development, right? We are, right. we are taking, uh, primarily LSD among other substances, but primarily mm-hmm. LSD, mm-hmm. which is more than 10,000 patient history in clinical studies, which is that's crazy wild. to have a new drug that, you know, it's yeah. been, uh, been in that many, uh, studies and in that many people. Mm-hmm. And, and right now we, we've just started our phase two. We're going to be mm-hmm. dosing soon or our first participants. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the success stories that, that we know about come from two places. They come from the body of research that, that the pioneers in the, in the industry started doing again recently and, and historically. Right. Um, and then we know some things from folks who've, who've obtained, uh, psychedelic, uh, psychedelics as an attempt to treat themselves right. via mechanisms that are, that aren't, you know, currently legal. Right, but right. but you know, I think that at their absolute best, what we hear is folks with long-standing, either affective illness, so depression primarily, or anxiety mm-hmm. disorders, mm-hmm. Uh, getting better, yeah, and not having it anymore. Which yeah. which we which we can do with psychotherapy, by the way. I think it's really important right. to say, right? I mean, not not generally in one session. Yeah, and so, and, that's, you know, the folks, wild, folks, that's the wild yeah. part. Yeah. Folks who do better on, on psychedelics might it might also not be one session, right? Yeah. It might it might take sure. maybe incremental improvements over sure. a couple of sessions, and then yeah. maybe at some point there's there's transformational change and no need to continue doing additional sessions, which mm-hmm. again mirrors psychotherapy. Yeah. But but the, the the highest aspiration of psychiatry that we've sort of lost in the SRI era is cure. Yeah. Right? Whatever that means to to an individual, but it, fundamentally it means that that they don't have to deal with right. this disorder anymore. Right now, if someone had zero anxiety, that would that would be unusual, right? That's right. not the goal. <laughs> there, there are good reasons to worry right. in the world today. Yeah, but it, but it's it's more Past about that point of being clinically considered. Yeah, those and, and it being yeah. being manageable and mm-hmm. and and folks feeling like they're able to live. You know, it, it, this this part gets a little philosophically complicated. Like, right. What does it mean to be okay what does it mean yeah. to be better what does it mean to yeah. be good and i've, so and I've tried subjective. to put together working working mm-hmm. definitions over the years mm-hmm. you know sort of the but but mainly it means being satisfied with your life and being right. able to make make plans for the future mm-hmm. that bring you more satisfaction and yeah. get to those plans and evaluate whether they were right or wrong and then right. repeat the cycle yeah fair enough uh i love that so most commonly we hear about depression anxiety ocd those things being being um 
sort of rectified and like i guess best case scenario yeah it's just one session um is is there a, a sort of uh inclusion like what what type of um symptoms that are are most likely to get resolved through this type of thing or most what most type of disorders have the best kind of results with this we have a sense of that i think it's important when we talk about named symptoms and even named disorders to remember how arbitrary some of these right. distinctions are yeah. that if if going out into the world makes you so anxious that you've stopped doing it mm-hmm. so now your life is constricted around you and, yeah. and you're isolated and feel right. down because you don't which one's anxiety which right. one's depression yeah they're and, just constantly so coupled together almost yeah. seems like yeah so so we have to kind of hold two ideas in our head all the time one is mm-hmm. from a regulatory perspective Right. And from a, from a payment and systems perspective, we need to have diagnoses and we need to have named symptoms and the ability mm-hmm. to record them. And, and we kind of need to focus on, on you know, the, the standard ways of measuring these disorders that you use to get a regulatory approval. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, we have to remember that I'll give you three disorders as an example, mm-hmm. the lines between depression, pain, and substance use disorders. Mm-hmm. Are not super clear, right? Right. These these sort of allegedly disparate entities uh, tend to interact with each other quite a bit and have 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 enormous relationships. Which isn't to say there isn't and aren't patients who just have pain or just have depression or just have a substance use disorder. But but many many of the folks who end up with with a diagnosis could have gotten a different one if they went somewhere else, right? And almost certainly are struggling with things on the borderline of their diagnosis and yeah. other diagnoses. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're we're hopeful. What what we've seen from the evidence for for LSD specifically is is studies of depression, studies of substance use disorder, including mm-hmm. alcohol use disorder, with mm-hmm. with full remission in some folks after one session, and then certainly uh, anxiety symptoms. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the some of the pioneering work that that rebooted the field that you've certainly seen and heard about in in mm-hmm. Uh, Mike's Mike's book and other you know sort of things in the in the press mm-hmm. um, was looking at end of life distress, which yeah. is end of life anxiety. Yeah. Now, there's a there's a psychodynamic uh, orientation that claims all anxiety is sort of end of life anxiety. But <laughs> um, so if you're good at end of life anxiety, you're probably good at other anxiety. Right. Too. Yeah. But, but you know, it's in a world of psychiatric drug development where the pressure on uh, drug discovery and development was to find drugs that were increasingly precise, that increasingly had one identifiable, isolated mechanism of action. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen a lot of success, and right. that again speaks to the, these diseases as heterogeneous mm-hmm. uh, collections of of symptoms. Yeah, uh, psychedelics. They while they do have a pretty specific mechanism by which they cause the psychedelic experience, mm-hmm. they're doing lots of other stuff in the brain, and so. Right. It, you know, ordinarily when you have a drug that does a lot of stuff, you have to worry about tox, right? Toxicology. Mm-hmm. Here, these drugs are safe. The acute right. experience is generally safe, certainly in a well-controlled yeah. environment, the acute mm-hmm. experience is safe. Mm-hmm. And we know that, that 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 they're safe over time, that people aren't, you know, experiencing what you would ordinarily worry about from a toxicological standpoint. Right. So so it's almost like we've gotten to step in a different direction, acknowledge that the diseases aren't particularly uh, biologically well defined, right? And then then take drugs that seem to have this sort of universal change, right? Mm-hmm. That they help people move in the direction they, they want to move when they're given yeah. in the right circumstance with the with the right you know people supervising at the right doses, and so so we're right. 
we're in an interesting space, which, and again, a lot like psychotherapy, which works across a range of disorders, it sure seems like we're dealing with, in the psychedelics class, a, a set of drugs mm-hmm. that work against a, a whole bunch of different, uh, uh, you know, name diseases or whatever you want to call them. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the most, so I, I wrote a chapter on kind of mental wellness and the treatments and kind of stuff in one of my book. I wrote, one of the most eye-opening things for me was the amount of overlap between you know, if something treats depression and anxiety, it also improves cognitive function. Those two seem to be coupled together and they seem to be treated the same. And it's what's interesting is now you got these two camps of psychedelics. You have these like biohackers that are looking at in a microdosing, and then you have the other end of the spectrum, people that are considered mentally unwell that are kind of like going for the more transformative issues. So I want to talk a little bit about the microdosing piece um, and what, what a typical dose looks like, what's, what the most common outcomes, I guess, that we're seeing and is really the ultimate uh sort of thing that's going on physiologically just neuroplasticity and that's sort of the 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 symptoms are sort of a result of that or what what talk a little bit about that yeah interestingly as you know not not to be contrary and and again i don't this is not in any way about what folks say about what they do but Mm -hmm. but from our perspective as drug developers we've stepped away from the idea of micro macro or whatever else just because so many other drugs that can be prescribed you can be prescribed in a range that's a whole lot broader than what right. we're defining as micro and macro here right so we just think about dr- drug dose mm-hmm. and and generally so when people are talking about microdose what we, what we would call probably just subperceptible or, or low dose they're mm-hmm. talking about a dose that's somewhere near threshold where you mm-hmm. didn't experience a true psychedelic effect right um, and and taking it more repeatedly mm-hmm. and and of course the more if you were to take, say, LSD daily, the the primary psychedelic effect actually gets blunted. It's called tachyphylaxis. It's a, the the receptors downregulate to so you don't actually trip anymore. Mm. Uh, so folks who are say microdosing daily or a few times a week are probably downregulating those receptors anyway, so they have less of a perceptible effect right. for, from taking it. What that does and how it does it. Mm. Still, <laughs> I, still too new. Like, yeah. I, I, I will. I'll tell you a lot of stuff, and I've got a lot of thoughts on these things. But sure. I, I, I really try not to over overstate the evidence. Totally and when fair. it comes yeah. to mechanisms in, in you know, neuroscience has come an awful long way, mm-hmm. and psychology has come an awful long way, mm-hmm. but they haven't met yet. Right. And and so you know, any when we postulate at their meeting points, we're we're doing just that. We're taking the evidence mm-hmm. the best we have and guessing. Yeah. We need to mm-hmm. acknowledge that we don't. We we still don't really know how SRIs work, mm-hmm. right? And those have been, think think about the prevalence of SRI yeah. use. So <laughs> so I it, one of the interesting things about developing drugs to try to help people is that you can postulate about the mechanism all day, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, what matters is did people get better. Right. And yeah. and so you don't have to know how they got better to know mm-hmm. if they got better. Right. So that's very much what we're focused on now. You know, we've got a low dose repeat uh, dose LSD uh, mm-hmm. trial in ADHD mm-hmm. that's currently enrolling in dosing, nice. and uh, so I, that for us is is our attempt to to somewhat answer not the mechanism question mm-hmm. because that that's a longer term project, right. but to answer the question, how much does this do? Mm-hmm. You know, if you if someone's actually blinded to their to their treatment allocation, whether they're getting placebo or drug, right, and they're evaluated over time by by impartial third party blinded evaluators, mm-hmm. double blind, yeah, it, yeah, it does does it do something other than what placebo does? And mm-hmm. and I think another really important thing when we when we talk about this is placebo is not a bad thing. 
it's only a bad thing in clinical trials. Right. Yeah. Right? True. In, in, yeah. in the real in the real world, we assume if that you get better, when, you get better. Yeah. yeah. And if I give someone a drug and they get better, we have no way of knowing what the drug did and what right. the drug didn't do. So true. And so yeah. some of that effect is placebo mm-hmm. effect, even though they're not on placebo. Right. Mm-hmm. So so I think you know, when we it's really important for people to remember that 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 mm-hmm. As especially as folks get wrapped up into the research world because they're interested mm-hmm. in psychedelics and yeah. they know that psychedelics being prescribable depends on a bunch of research. So they're mm-hmm. looking at psychiatry clinical trials for the first mm-hmm. time, and everyone's talking about oh, this placebo effect's killing us. No, the placebo effect's helping people. Yeah. <laughs> That's the problem with it. Yeah. <laughs> True so, so, so it's it, it really is a it's it's two different views of the world. Right. But it's it's the the most the clinical trials are just a way to to bring something forward to try to help people in the real world. Yeah. And so we have to re- we, wherever possible. Now, as a drug developer, we have to flip back and forth. But wherever possible, as a doctor, my view my view has to be oriented toward is will people do better in the real world? Right. You know, you, you've mentioned cognition, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the connection between cognition and depression before. Mm-hmm. As folks get older, and for folks with lower cognitive capacity, depression can be profoundly impairing to cognition. So there, yeah. there are older patients who will present with what looks like a, a kind of a sudden onset dementia, mm. like a like a really fast Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. and you always have to treat for depression right. because it, it particularly in, in older folks with lower you know MCI or lower mm-hmm. cognitive reserves. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a a depressive episode can look a lot like a, a dementia. We used to right. call it pseudo dementia. Yeah. It's been renamed now, but but we have to remember that those two are really deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Um, I want to dive into some of the sort of and uh, I, I know the stuff's kind of still in development a little bit. Um, but talk. So when we look at the higher dose camp, people that do have a clinical issue, whether whatever that issue is, depression, anxiety, OCD, um, how how do you arrive at a dosage? Is that like a set number? Is it like based on patient weight? Is it sort of until the, the the signs change and they've had an effect or how do you arrive at a right dose when you start to look at administering that in a, in a clinic setting? That's a, a really good mm-hmm. question. How do we think about dosing? And again, because a lot of the research on these substances was pretty mm-hmm. old and now we're, we're trying to do a lot of more modern mm-hmm. research. You know, we have a collaboration with University University Hospital Basel, where there's a long history of working with these drugs and a lot of sort of dose effect and comparative dose mm-hmm. finding uh, studies. We've got fairly well informed about at least where we should be looking for mm-hmm. the doses. I will say that the design of our phase two LSD study is very oriented around identifying the right dose to bring into phase three. Mm. And there's some things to consider when you think about doses. W- one is can't be too complicated, right? Yeah, so, true so enough. So weight-based dosing, while for some drugs it's really important, mm-hmm. and, and of course there's some drugs you can only dose by checking level periodically, right? And you're, you're actually you're in the right range. It it sure doesn't seem like psychedelics are that kind of drug mm. that that uh, on a population basis you can probably get to a dose or a couple of doses that are right for the vast majority of people. Mm-hmm. And what we are doing in the phase two is a five-arm study oh, where wow. we're looking at everything from a dose that we expect to be kind of at the perceptible threshold mm-hmm. all the way up to 200 micrograms. Oh, wow. And, and yep, <laughs> fairly decent dose of LSD. That's wild. And, the, and 
to not just look at the acute effects, though of course we will look at the acute effects, mm-hmm. but to look at how those folks uh course goes over time and to see sure. if yeah. rate of uh clinical improvement, different different rates of remission. Mm-hmm. Uh also to look at what happens in the session to see if there's a dose that is effective but but uh, either easier to manage in the session or causes mm-hmm. less acute anxiety, this sort of stuff. Yeah. So yeah. so we're I mean that is one of the things that I'm most proud of about the way we're doing this work is that mm-hmm. we're really trying to do good science along the way sure. and, and get to the right answers for, so that when we prosecute a phase three program, we're doing it with as much information as we possibly can. Yeah. And all, all of that adds up to the, the greatest likelihood of being able to, to get a drug to market. Right. Fair enough. I love that. Um, so I guess one of the other issues, and this is sort of like, it's a tough thing to quantify is the state of the of the patient or or whatever. And um, and obviously that plays a role in how the drugs are gonna impact them and stuff like that. Um, how rigorous is your kind of patient inclusion criteria for for a study like that? Do you do you do a psychiatric evaluation? Is it just a kind of casual questionnaire or or what 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 does it look like for an ideal patient to enter those studies? Yeah. Well, we do have to have some tightness around inclusion exclusion criteria you know you have to stick to what you wrote down mm-hmm. and the things you write down are the things right. that you kind of split the difference between the fidelity of the study so how much mm-hmm. it, the study has to do two things it has to answer a question mm-hmm. and then as best you're able you have to say okay this answer that we got from this study also applies to a wider population mm-hmm. so the more narrow your inclusion exclusion criteria are Maybe the higher fidelity the actual study is, mm. but the less generalizable it is. Right. And so we're always we're always That's looking tricky. at the right intersection of people who represent the real population as much as you're able, but also mm. don't include confounders that might make the data right. more difficult to mm. interpret. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we so there, there's an element of of psychiatric exam based on mm. standardized in in clinical research. You try to do everything as standardized sure. as possible. Yeah. Across twenty sites, you want to. You want to make sure that that each that you're not getting variants between the sites on who they're yeah. getting in study where you're able. So, um, yeah, standard questionnaires, standard interview with with a, uh, an investigator. Um, everyone's you know there's blood draws and things like this to look yeah. at, at you know their biological things, and then people are followed at regular intervals with with repeat instruments. Mm-hmm. So, um, fair enough. Yeah, the the inclusion exclusion are are on the clinicaltrials.gov site, which right. you know, we have to yeah. post on that. Sure. Uh, and you know it's this is wherever i it feels strange saying this because of all of the excitement about psychedelics that we feel and that and that everybody else feels but at the same time our orientation is to say it's a drug yeah right our our job is to prove that it's a drug so that then it can be a drug in in the real world right, right. mm-hmm and or possibly to discover it's not in this case you know that's in general psychiatric research that's more yeah. of an issue because so many drugs so many chemicals look like drugs and then mm-hmm. aren't the body of evidence that supports both the class and specifically lsd as a member mm-hmm. of the class is strongly suggestive that we're sitting on something that ought to help people and ought to work so then it's on us to do rigorous drug development techniques mm-hmm. to to robustly demonstrate Fine, that that is the variables yeah yeah Awesome. Um, so one of the interesting conundrums with this is you, you come as a as a patient with this issue, whether it is anxiety, and the the I guess the irony here is that the drawback, the potential side effect, is falling into an anxiety attack when when you're getting treated. Right. I don't know how common that happens, but obviously that's how much 
how rigorous is that protocol where you're sort of like monitoring and, and minimizing the chance of kind of a, a downward spiral or back or, or bad trip, so to speak, happening through that process? Yeah, I don't want to minimize the experience of a bad trip for anybody because for mm-hmm. folks who've had them and described them, I, people have clearly had uh, terrifying experiences mm-hmm. and ba- and you know bad outcomes. Those were not in the clinical studies. It just oh, wasn't. Really? You know, huh, you know the, the bad outcomes come from the anecdotes. They come from a right. lot of the a lot of exaggeration of the risk mm. that came from the political backlash in the sixties. Mm. So yeah. I, I, re, I, I always try to be clear that this is not the usual, it's not in any way the usual outcome for people, mm. the usual outcome for people, even in, in relatively uncontrolled environments right. is positive. Right. That's why does people, that come down to dose for the most part? Do you think there's like the, the bad trips have been kind of blown out of proportion it, or a bit it, of both? It's an intersection of of environment, of internal state going into the experience, mm-hmm. and of of dose, of course. And right. you know, when it comes to to uh, substances that are procured on the street, what was actually in the the substance. Yeah. So w- what we've implemented is a uh, yeah a protocol to keep to keep folks safe and calm. And it, it, again, we'll see what we see, but I, I we're not really expecting to see a whole lot of trouble. So what we have is is two people in the room at all times. Mm-hmm. With with the with the patient with right. the participant, and those folks are folks who have experience in one of them is a licensed you know provider sure. and psychiatrist. The other can be a little less a little less credentialed but still mm-hmm. experienced, who have uh, practiced and and learned from folks who have a lot of experience conducting psychedelic psychotherapy, mm-hmm. whether it's you know in, in the states or particularly outside of the states, and uh, have some really sort of well-vetted plans for helping folks remember what's happening if they get, if they can't. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, what we start with for a lot of these folks who are going into the session monitoring and these trainings is, look, mostly what someone needs to be reminded is this ends. You can take a yeah, break. You can sit up, right. we can chat. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember that you took drugs not that long ago yeah. and this is just the drugs yeah. right this is what we this is what we knew to expect yeah and and when you're ready why don't we go back in and keep doing what, what you were doing and see if you can't right. see if you can you know have yeah. the have the experience and lean into the experience if that's such if a that, simple concept but just tough to like you forget that you're still the same person and nothing else has changed you just like took this chemical yeah. like you feel like your whole walls can be even yeah. a bad trip yeah. it's wild yeah. it's and and to do these the the sites that we've chosen are sites that either uh have experience or are seeking experience in the space mm-hmm. or really are interested in you know really great psychiatric research sites that that are oriented toward providing this type of care they all have to have dedicated rooms for it sure the rooms the rooms are not meant to, the rooms don't have to be standardized particularly, but they're not meant to feel like clinic rooms. They're meant mm-hmm. to feel a little more comfortable and to make sure right. that folks have a place to, to, to be lying down, set up if they need to. Mm-hmm. You know, ensuite bathrooms. So if somebody needs to go to the bathroom, they don't have to go out and be in front of anybody else. So mm-hmm. the entire experience is meant to provide that sort of, again, a psychotherapy Comfort. concept that applies here. Yeah, like a holding environment right. where someone where someone can feel comfortable letting themselves lean into the experience, whatever it feels like at the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. because they they've been prepared. They've met these people. They've developed a, a you know, some trust in them mm-hmm. that, that because it's a, a professional clinical operation, you know, we, we do things, we do strange things with, with clinical operators that we let people operate on us, you know? So, so <laughs> yeah, this is true. Yeah, yeah. this is more invasive, but this is, this is, this is arguably, you know, it's kind of down the middle for what what it is. And and so all, but all of it oriented toward trying to ensure that, that, that folks experience is, is, is 
what it should be, what it, what it can be. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's not necessarily all positive, right? Mm-hmm. Did folks sometimes when folks are having these sessions, they can it can think memories can come up or right or a new way of seeing old memories can yeah. come up, right? Mm-hmm. That that can be not necessarily uh sort of positive in the moment, but that that the person is able to move through Changes the way of thinking yeah, yeah. And we can move through whatever mm-hmm. you know if there's some negative things that come up that's okay mm-hmm. because they can move through them and that's right. why they're there yeah absolutely i love that um and sticking kind of with the concept of environment i've uh i've read that music is used often is that like a universal thing do you guys use music in your clinical setting or is that a little case by case how do you decide on the, what's what's on the set list for that day a lot of lot of uh, people weighed in. Is, is how we did it. It was sort of a consensus process. Okay, interesting. Proposed, proposed components. So just kind of so, relaxing vibes, almost like meditative sort of. Yeah, uh, it's, tunes. it's not not very lyrical, right? I yeah. mean, you want, you want things that allow that that sort of can occupy a bit of the brain while allowing the the more thoughtful parts of the brain to to mm-hmm. go down and and do whatever's going to happen in in the experience. And and nobody has to listen to music. Okay, right? the music is available. Yeah, to folks who want it. Um, I think people do tend to to choose that mm-hmm. for at least some of the experience, but mm-hmm. you know, for other folks that may be not what they're going for, and that's okay too. Right, love that. Um, so we touched a little bit on neuroplasticity, and some of this is still unknown, but we know that obviously it's the neurotransmitters have a role as well. How much do we know about the 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 role of dopamine, serotonin, and some of the other neurotransmitters in the process of of getting this transformative effect from from psychedelic treatment? What, what I can say is that we know a fair bit about the acute effects mm-hmm. so we know that serotonin is is implicated in the in the acute uh, experiential effect of the trip if if you you know mm-hmm. if you use that nomenclature again <laughs> it's fair game for this chat sir <laughs> <laughs> the uh and and we know that there's a deep relationship between dopamine and reward experience right mm-hmm. pleasure and reward mm-hmm. and, and these sorts of things have been demonstrated largely in animal models right and and mm-hmm animal models you can do things that are meant to represent something a person might do right so yeah. if you give a rat a dopamine hit directly you know a dopamine releaser directly into the into the brain you can get them mm-hmm. to keep pressing a button instead of yeah. eating essentially sure how that and and you could you can then say okay well that maps on to say ad- addictive behavior mm-hmm. the the harder thing for translation from animal models is these more human states right yeah. that, depression anxiety these sorts of things yeah rats not going to tell you a whole lot about how they're feeling so right so then you just try to intuit it yeah so for anxiety you do things like put put a rat on what's called an elevated plus maze which has clear bottoms and Mm. opaque bottoms Mm. and like measure how much time it's spending on the clear versus right less anxious rat goes on to the clear more Mm. i mean kind of right yeah i guess yeah for depression, it's the, still we use something called the forced swim test, where you just mm. sort of put the rat in a bucket and see how long until it gives up. Huh. Bucket with in it. Um, and yeah, I mean, right? You, if you squint, okay, I can. It's it's what we've got. Mm. But when it actually comes to the mechanisms of how we feel over time and how anxious we are over time and things like this, it, you know, neuro, so neuroplasticity comes up a lot, and because it's, mm. it's very sexy and appealing to think, mm-hmm. oh. This, these these drugs will just change my brain mm-hmm. in a good way. It's important to remember when folks are talking about neuroplasticity that literally everything is neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. Every single thing you do, every yeah. sing, everything you hear, everything you remember, mm-hmm. every feeling you've ever had, mm-hmm. all represent changes in your brain. 
Right. So, so psychotherapy generates neuroplasticity. Yeah. Going to psychotherapy and having yeah. adversity is neuroplastic. Everything's neuroplastic. That's yeah. how our brain works. It's yeah. a, it fundamentally depends on structure. Good night, so, you know, we, yeah, lithium is neuroplastic. Lithium is mm. incredibly neuroplastic, mm. and it, it you know shows the same sort of dendritic growth that that you might see from these things. So, mm. I I love the idea, and I think it's really important. You know, sometimes people take me as sort of poo pooing neuroscience. I'm not doing that. I think it's really important we keep trying. Mm-hmm. It's just also really important we don't overstate what we know from neuroscience that's applicable to right. a particularly mm-hmm. chronic human experience mm-hmm. and and so that that gap is quite wide still right if if in fact these drugs induce a period of neuroplasticity we may discover that there are things that folks should be doing during that period of neuroplasticity mm-hmm. to maximize yeah. the, the benefit of it right but it, you know hard to hard to hard to really conclusively say For much sure. more than that about yeah. people yeah Actually, I wanted to ask you about that as well. Uh, so I, I assume kind of more traditional treatments for these people are going to help. And there's somewhat of a synergistic effect. Have those been studied kind of in concert with psychedelics, stuff like psychotherapy, exercise, nutrition, sleep therapy, supplementation? Is there one specific type that tends to lend well with, with drugs? Or are we just kind of still figuring that stuff out? So we we know that psychotherapy, good good psychotherapy, and it's hard. This gets a little circular because what is good psychotherapy? What is psychotherapy yeah, yeah. helps you? Yeah. Um, but, but to me, good psychotherapy is depth psychotherapy that mm-hmm. that that works on underlying characterological defenses. I right. mean, I that's that's really what psychotherapy's job is. Getting to the root yeah. issue, in other words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Try to try to get at well, you know, all of the theorists agree on on some things, and one of them is that that as a developing child and then adolescent and then even through adulthood the mechanisms we use to protect ourselves at one stage or from one perceived threat can stick around and be reapplied in places where they shouldn't be right and that's fundamentally what the, that's what you're working on when you do depth psychotherapy is how mm-hmm. do we make sure that, me- that defenses that were either adaptive or maladaptive at the time they were adopted don't carry through and and do maladaptive stuff in the person's life. Right. So good psychotherapy helps people. Mm-hmm. There are a number of drugs that help people, though, you know, which people, how and how much is still up for debate. Mm-hmm. And so that we every time they're looked at together, we discover that these things work together, right? That mm-hmm. if you do both, you get yeah. better results than doing mm-hmm. one or the other. Mm-hmm. I think that the 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 particular if really if the experience matters, but the the sort of the nature of the psychedelic, um, you know, experience possibly mechanism lends itself particularly well to psychotherapy, mm-hmm. and then everything else you know that you listed, yes, like people should be engaging in behaviors that that both acutely make. Mm-hmm. So and psychotherapy is a little bit of a contradiction because yeah. if you walk if you walk out of psychotherapy feeling better, you might not be doing hard enough work. But mm-hmm. over time, it should make you feel and be better. Right. Um, but you know, taking care of oneself does not necessarily mean only doing things that make you feel good, right? It means that sure. you still do things that have challenge yourself. Maybe have longer term objectives yeah. as well, and mm-hmm. like some combination of the two that that works for the individual is is mm-hmm. probably where the money's at there. Yeah. Do you have like? I'm just gonna. I don't want to do build this to death, but uh, if if uh, we. If you had to choose, I guess, between say a person is okay, is open to psychotherapy, they're open to exercise, nutrition, sleep, supplementation. Do you have a sense of wh- which direction you would kind of guide them in if, if they had to choose one of them? So, I mean, I, I if, if someone hasn't done a good course of psychotherapy or they have and they're not feeling 
psychiatrically healthy then Mm -hmm. i think psychotherapy i I think if you can if you can get good psychotherapy Mm -hmm. absolutely get good psychotherapy very little aware of as much good for people sleep is sleep is clearly incredibly important i don't know what sleep does either by the way or why we have to sleep so you know there there are theories about that but yeah um, but despite us not fully understanding sleep it's like it's it's important you got to you know have all these figured out about sleep hygiene and, and things like that so so mm-hmm. very much support that uh, exercise. And, you know, for me, like I, I don't set aside time to exercise, but I always try to walk places when I'm trying to get to places. So I do yeah. a lot of walking and I play, yeah. I play some games, you know, that involve running around. Sure. Um, but just, you know, it, be, being active better than not being active. And then uh, that diet, when it comes to diet advice, you know, you say you, you, you're liable to sound silly tomorrow if you say something too specific today. Yeah. But, <laughs> But in general, don't eat too much too often is probably pretty good advice. Yeah, a little caloric <laughs> restriction, yeah. Yeah, probably not like like a ton of calories from processed sugars, but like yeah. also some are okay. You know, it's like yeah, yeah. you know, my, all things in moderation, including right moderation. moderation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I love that. Um, so you've been working mostly with LSD, and there's, I mean, it's almost like these psychedelics are getting lumped together with psilocybin and MDMA and. Um, and a few of the others do you have a sense or do we know really is there is there a drug preference is that kind of dependent somewhat on on the the variables around the the patient specifically are they all still kind of like are we all the same place in that research or or how much do we know about the differences in different kind of uh psychedelic agents also really good question and something that i that we often find ourselves kind of clarifying when we start talking about classes and drugs is that the excitement about psychedelics and specifically the word psychedelic has caused mm-hmm. a bunch of things to be lumped under a tent where they maybe don't belong. Right. So ketamine, for example, and S-ketamine, which is which is the, the Janssen product, uh, Spirato, mm-hmm. those aren't psychedelic, mm-hmm. right? And and yeah. when and and when used uh, carefully in a proper dose, sometimes people don't feel an acute effect at all, but they they cause they seem to to pretty reliably cause rapid reduction in severe depression and reduction in suicidal ideation. That's awesome. Not psychedelics. Right. MDMA, which MAPS is advancing in, in the treatment of PTSD. By the way, the MAPS program is different because theirs is really about combining drug plus psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. So, it, it sh- you know, the, the evidence does not suggest that MDMA in isolation is, is helpful for PTSD. Mm. So they're doing psychotherapy plus MDMA. And the point there is that the, the psychotherapy is able to, to accelerate and get more depth to it mm-hmm. quicker because the MDMA builds a sense of trust between the, the provider and the patient and empathy right. and all the things that are kind of necessary for psychotherapies to work. In the middle there are the, uh, the sort of core um, psychedelic medicines, which, you know, they're, they're psychedelic drugs, which, you know, psilocybin, mescaline, LSD, DMT, 5-MeO, DMT, a couple of, you know, there's some others that, that are mm-hmm. slightly, that are slightly different, like Ibogaine. Um, and, and so how will we know who should get which? And you asked about dose before, at which dose, right. when, with what sort of preparation, what sort of follow-up? Mm-hmm. Those are the questions that we got to answer. Yeah. But again, and I'll, I always fall back on, on SRIs as the example. We still, still don't really know which SRI yeah. we should start on. So I, I hope that as thoughtful folks trying to help people, that different companies have, which have, have different assets, different drugs, there are ways that we can 
can try to work together to develop the body of evidence as to who should be getting what at what dose mm. and when and these sorts of things. Yeah. And that's partly what we're doing with our uh, digital medicine effort mm. at MindMed is looking at, at ways of measuring people in a more fine-grained way so that we can start to understand maybe these diseases in a more fine-grained way and, and, mm. and individuals in a more fine-grained way and really start to try to uh, be able to create some decision support for clinicians around uh, you know, what, how, how to make these choices with the best evidence they can. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so, and kind of to your point, we're still in an early phase here, and I guess depending where you are in the world, logistically, legally, we're kind of limited. Um, what are the current options for people who are interested in medicinal therapy? I guess throughout is is it um, where are we where are we at kind of with uh, logistics legally? So there are studies is one way to to access uh, a, a study drug. Now you may mm-hmm. get study drug, you may get a placebo in some in some cases. In other mm-hmm. cases, you may be in an open label study and know you're going to get the the drug. So that that's certainly one way to do it. But there's not if studies were enough to treat everybody, then yeah. we'd never have to stop doing studies. We just yeah. <laughs> um, but there there are not really outside of studies really many legal avenues mm-hmm. to yeah. to acquire these drugs most of you know certainly from a federal perspective mm-hmm. these drugs are, are schedule one and are federally federally not legal and yeah. in order to do research with them we need special permission from yeah from the government to be able to mm-hmm. do that so it, it's a hard thing to say but for folks who are suffering and and think that this will be helpful get help in the meantime there mm-hmm. are options while these yeah. are on the way and, and mm-hmm. even if you think you've tried everything Find find someone who's good at psychotherapy. Find someone who's good at psychiatry. If you can, if you're at all able, because yeah. these aren't magic. Mm-hmm. I hope because if they're magic, we're all bets are off on science. Yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 while we're extraordinarily hopeful that they will help a lot of folks, no no one should be waiting. Right, everyone right. should be trying to, you know, no, don't wait for me to finish my job to try to feel better. There are options in the meantime to feel mm-hmm. better. Yeah, and just because it feels like you've tried, the number of patients I've seen who who say I've tried everything is high. Mm. And guess what? They haven't tried. Yeah, true enough. Right? Every, everything's a very, very big box. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so there, sure. there's probably something out there, and probably many things out there that you haven't tried. And and yeah. so that yeah. that's my. The, the waiting to get the time spent waiting to get better is time spent not better. True. Yeah, you're right. Um, this is kind of a loaded question, but do you have a sense of if and when this we might see a change, or what are the current barriers? Kind of like the the red tape sitting sitting around getting this uh, opened. Is it just more like do we need like ten more years of research? Do you have a sense of what that'll yeah. look like? Yeah, we're on the we're on the four or five years of research. Yeah. In evaluation, yeah, that's 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 the timeline. I think realistically, but for 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 true psychedelics, um, right? You know, maps and maps and MDMA maybe maybe in front. Compass is mm-hmm. uh, developing psilocybin and and you know doing it, doing what they can to to do that as expeditiously as possible. Uh, but I think you you know no, no matter how much we want these to work, no matter how much everybody wants them to work, no matter how much the regulators. Want them right. right. Regulators have the same goal we do, which mm-hmm. is to to, dem- to have be demonstrated too that these drugs are safe For and sure. effective. Need yeah. to go to market. So the the the, the re- like the reality of these processes are they have a pace, and you can pull levers to accelerate them, but only so much. Yeah, fair enough. And so, where does that leave 
MindMed, what what's what can we expect from MindMed over the next like four or five years in the meantime? Is it is it you're just kind of looking for funding, adding adding some more studies to the to the to yeah. the the ducket? I, I think you know we the the macroeconomic environment for biotech is what it is right this minute. That mm-hmm. is not going to stay that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we obviously will need more money over time to bring mm-hmm. uh, these drugs more than just LSD. We have our, our MDMA program for mm-hmm. autism, which mm-hmm. is a very, an entirely different way of thinking about MDMA than, than the way that maps has been thinking about MDMA. Interesting. So it, it just, you know, we're thinking of a, a daily dose drug that helps folks with autism, with, with social expression and social communication, mm-hmm. um, which I, really exciting concept. Uh, yeah. And then as, as, and fi- finance situations change and, mm-hmm. and the environment changes. Uh, our our goal is to build a, a brain health focused pharma company. And cool. there are a few examples of folks who've done that in the past. We're starting with a, a molecule that captures some attention for sure, yeah. for obvious <laughs> reasons. And yeah. that, that's a good thing. Yeah. But, but that's not the end of the MindMed story. The, the, the MindMed story is a, a, a longer uh, and, a, and I hope uh, even more influential uh, tale in its ability to to inform what I think of as as the next stage of of psychiatry and psychotherapy. Awesome. Well, it sounds like you guys are doing pretty amazing work. Uh, Dan, I want to expand this a little bit to your your kind of personal personal. We talk briefly about your 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 protocol with exercise. Um, and it's easy to kind of get lost with what your own priorities are around your health, especially when you got a busy busy work schedule. What's at the top of your list in terms of your health and and wellness in terms of priorities and what your habits look like around that? Yeah, and and I, I always am a little cautious talking about too much about my own stuff because there is it's another tendency in this world to make to to very much focus on it. Well, if you had the experience, and and in medicine in general and in psychiatry specifically, it's there's an appeal to that, right? To appeal mm-hmm. to my experience as being informative, sure. and and so when I treat patients, it's more important to remember that they are not me, yeah, yeah, than, than to try to identify with how they yeah. are me. Yeah, right? it's for what sure. Works, what works for one person. It's, it's the same and, thing as a coach. Like your first thought is this works so well for me. This must work for the whole world. And it's, you, so you yeah. kind of have to keep those two as, as separate things. It's worked in this one case that I am patient yeah. one. And I have way more access to my, well, I may or may not have way more access to my internal state than I do to somebody else's yeah. internal state. Yeah, for sure. A lot of things. Yeah. So, but, but, you know, I, th- I think what I said before covers it pretty well. And particularly when busy, when, you know, sleep, sleep. I flew in on a red eye last night mm-hmm. and I'm feeling pretty good. But the thing I learned in residency is if I'm going to not get a good night's sleep, I probably shouldn't eat a whole lot that, that day or particularly mm-hmm. that evening before yeah. not sleeping because I'm right. really happy the next day. If, yeah. if I go at all. So, so a lot of the things that I think the way I experience my day to day is the things I can control or, or not my schedule. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. the things that take up time that that are adding time to my calendar might might be more stress inducing. So sure. a lot of what I do is, you know, can, can I can I walk to the office from home in the morning, yeah. even if that means taking my first call while I'm still walking, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And try to be pretty cognizant of of what I eat and when I eat. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I don't have super specific dietary advice for anybody. I just sort of know what what makes me feel good and what kind of keeps me at a a weight that I'm comfortable with, with Fair the enough. amount of exercise I actually have time to do. Yeah. And then the, the I, I, some of the best advice, I think, particularly in 
or, or like, but do we call this the post-COVID world? I don't know. I still hear a lot about COVID. <laughs> <That's> so <laughs> it, 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 it depends on your yeah. perspective, I guess. But, yeah. but in a world that's been so so affected, and uh, with a pop with a population of, of people who've been so affected by COVID, is mm-hmm. that that we are social animals, even if it's easy to forget that yeah. because it's not to be social, and sometimes Absolutely. being social is hard, and for some people, it's hard. It's mm-hmm. being social is stressful, but. Yeah. But to find opportunities to connect with people, yeah, I think connection is an antidote to an awful lot of kinds of distress. For sure, and and maybe the the best advice for that is if if you're struggling to feel connected or to find connection, got to find plans. The, mm. the way to make friends is to make plans. Yeah, and so whether that's whether that's one on one plans or plans to go join a group of people who are interested in something you're interested in. Yeah, the, the way to the way to make friends is to make plans. Yeah, well, well said. Absolutely agree. Well, uh, Dr. Carlin, it's been an unbelievable chat. We appreciate the time. What's the best means for people to, to learn more for, about you and, and what med, uh, MindMed is up to these days? Certainly the MindMed website, mindmed.co, is mm-hmm. is the source of all our uh, official information. Uh, we, cool. we get covered periodically in the news and by analysts and stuff like that. So, so you know, the, when, when there's when there's something out there, it's probably something we we said or did. So, yeah. so we had to check that out. And, you know, if, if folks, um, there, there are ways to get in touch with us on the website. If folks have specific comments or thoughts or, you know, we, 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 we read our mail. So yeah, if great. thoughts from us, uh, do feel free to, to let us know. Awesome. Yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes. Well, again, appreciate the time. It's been a great chat and wishing you all the best. Yeah, total pleasure. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Thanks for tuning in this episode of Healthspan Academy, guys. We'll see you next time. Hey, what's up, guys? Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much for supporting this channel. This has been a fun project. We are growing in viewership every single week, and we obviously couldn't do that without you. So thank you for continuing to tune in. I really hope you're getting value out of the, the programming and the content. Just wanted to give you a heads up. I've been working on a, a book on health and longevity the last couple of years, been collaborating with my colleague, Dr. Dan Vitale, who's uh, an expert in the field as well. And we, we've basically just kind of summarized the literature, some of the techniques that we found really useful in the world of biohacking, what our exercise regimen looks like, what's, you know, cardio type stuff is going to help us live longer and healthier, mobility work, nutrition. We've covered the whole spectrum, everything that you can basically be in control of in your health and fitness kind of moving forward to help you live as healthily as possible for as long as possible. And it's available free for download. So if you click on the YouTube banner, you'll see a link to download the the blueprint. It's also on our Instagram profile or on the website. You can click on fivepillarmethod.com slash optimize to get your free copy of the book. And I hope you enjoy it. Hope you're keeping well. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next time.